think we should get this started. Uh, thanks, I can use some good pictures so, uh, for my, my, uh, my resume. Uh, uh, we, we usually have people filter in like uh, many events in Washington late, but, so we'll start now. If, if people come in late, we'll just ignore them. Uh, my name is Paul Coyer. I'm a research professor here at the Institute of World Politics. For those of you that haven't heard of IWP, it is not a think tank. We do like to think that we think here, um, but we are actually a graduate school, an accredited graduate school for national security and foreign policy. We have five two-year master's degrees, 17 one-year certificates in various things like statecraft, diplomatic history, uh, intelligence analysis, uh, unique little things like that. We're starting a professional doctorate that will take between three and five years to complete uh, a doctorate in national security. Um, that will begin in the autumn of 2018. So that's the, the, the latest big thing, big news from us. Um, Dave <clears throat> is uh, a friend of mine who is uh, quite a unique and interesting guy. He has some unique and interesting friends here in the back. Uh, they, they run with, uh, with a uh, Pentagon sort of mafia uh, that does interesting things. We'll just leave it to that. No, 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 um, all the effective work is done outside of the Says <laughs> 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 someone who just left, right? Um, anyway, Dave is a, a active duty, right? Lieutenant Colonel in the U.S. Air Force. He flew uh, C-130s. Uh, he does a lot of things with Reapers right now. Uh, but that's not what he's actually here to talk about. I, um, many of you have, uh, will remember the movie that came out about 10 or 11 years ago. Um, with uh, the Welsh actor, Johan Gruffeld, uh, called Amazing Grace. Oh, yeah. And it was an excellent movie based upon a book uh, written by another friend of mine named uh, Eric Metaxas by the same name. And it was about William Wilberforce, and it was an amazing story, of course, about him and the Clapham Circle and about how uh, he sacrificed a promising career in the British Parliament. Everyone knew that he would one day be Prime Minister. He's good friends with Pitt, the uh, younger and uh, sacrificed that career and his health and years and years of his life to finally take on the economic and political interests that supported the slave trade in the British Empire and did so successfully, although at great cost to himself. But that's not where the story ends. When the parliament finally voted to make that slave trade illegal, that really didn't mean much because there were still vast financial incentives to keep it going. And Frankly, nobody knows the story about how it ended, which is why the topic of Dave's PhD at Georgetown is, you know, when you do a PhD, you try to find a niche that no one's written about, and he really found a doozy. Uh, because this, this is something that would not only make a great book, but quite frankly make a great movie. Uh, you know, there's, there's swashbuckling, uh, you know, ship-on-ship -ship violence and, uh, you know, coercive uh, actions on the part of British diplomats and Royal Navy officers threatening people, all for good cause. Um, ending the Atlantic slave trade. And uh, anyway, so this is uh, going to be quite an interesting topic. There are, I know, history teachers that can bore you to tears. Dave is not one of them. First of all, the topic lends itself to keeping you on the edge of your seat. Uh, secondly, I know from experience, talking for hours sometimes over beer on this, that Dave can keep it very interesting. Uh, so a little bit more about Dave. He's a senior special operations aviation advisor at the Office of the Secretary of Defense works on emerging aviation technology, artificial intelligence, and competitive strategies. Uh, he's a grad of the small technical college on the front range of the Rockies, say that quickly. Um, class of 2002, holds a master's from Harvard and his doctor, as I mentioned, is from Georgetown. Um, he is an evaluator pilot on the Air Force Special Operations Command with more than 2,000 combat hours. 
and six theaters of combat. Uh, and the AC-130 Spooky gunship, I like that name. Uh, the MQ-1 Predator and the MQ-9 Reaper. Uh, and anyway, like I said, very well-rounded, interesting guy, and this is gonna be an amazing topic. So please join me in welcoming Lieutenant Colonel Dave Blair. Thank you so much, and uh, I will do my best to live up to that introduction. Uh, at the outset, I apologize, I'm fighting a cold, so uh, if I'm reaching for water, that's why. Um, one of the things that really fascinated me about this case study, so I'll actually give you a little bit of the backstory. Um, I set out to do my dissertation. I wanted to look at how current theories of social, uh, social network analytics could help us fight modern day trafficking, specifically human trafficking. Um, and so I set out to do that, and one of the things that I realized is A, the data doesn't exist for that, but B, I actually needed to look deeper into history to find, uh, to, to find the data I was looking for. And this case study is something I really just didn't expect to, uh, expect to find. It was, I, I, you get to the end of Amazing Grace, right, and they roll, they start playing the bagpipes, and magically the slave trade goes away, right? And there's, um, there's some discussion of, you know, clearly something happens after that. I had no idea what had happened, right? So, so I, I want to walk you guys through that journey with me. So at the outset, if you guys have any questions, please don't save them for the end. Please just uh, raise them to me as we go, and we'll make this a, we'll make this a journey together. So, um, and so please feel free to engage any of this. I will, I will intersperse this with sea stories just because there's a number of tactical engagements in the course of this that are, uh, that are frankly fascinating. Um, so if there's, a, if there's too much or too little of that, then please feel free to, to tell me to press on. We do need to do some theory at the outset. It is, it is a dissertation, so apparently we have to have methods and theory. So those are always, uh, always useful. But one of the things that's really fascinating about this case study, and one of the things that I would ask you to take, uh, take into it, is that we really didn't have the math to understand what they did. Right? You have people who spent 50 years trying to suppress networks. They got unbelievably good at it. Right, um, but then naval history rolled on. We kind of we kind of brushed over this case study mostly because it was complex. It was hard to understand, but we really didn't have the math. And so recently, as we've gotten far better at social network analytics, as we've gotten far better at actually understanding how to kill a network, only now do we have the tools to really understand what they did. So I think we are in an interesting point in history right now to say, hey, we do know something about killing networks, right? This is something that we've spent 20 years learning how to do, and now we can go back and look at what they did and actually understand it in the totality of it. So that's one of the ways that I approach this case study, one of the reasons why I found this case study so, so um, just enchanting, and one of, the, one of the reasons why I think we're in a unique position to, uh, to, to look at it now. So front matter, since I am in, in the military, the thoughts I'm expressing here, I'm expressing um, of my own. Uh, of my own recognizance, so hopefully I like, believe they reflect well on those organizations, but they are not the opinions of those organizations. And then this is Chatham House Rules, so part of this is um, we can have an open conversation and, and that would be fantastic. And then if there's there's something you need to take into research later, obviously we can, we can have that conversation, that shouldn't be a problem. Then we will make sure they don't post this on YouTube. Okay. Because they usually do. Okay. But they we, don't have to. We could actually do that though, so okay. we'll, let, let's make that call at the end, Okay. if that works. Um, so starting with, starting with the beginning, right? Wilberforce, we all, we all know who, who Wilberforce was, right? He's this, this, this iconic figure, right? I think we actually, in my opinion, do him a disservice, right? We talk about Wilberforce as this iconic individual who just changes the world, and everything you said is 100% true, but that's in the context of the Clapham Circle and the context of social movements and the context of a whole lot of backing, right? He, he, is, he is an individual that leverages the forces of his time. Right? And the way that the forces of his time were, were constructed, it goes beyond himself. And I think if, 
if he understood, he, he obviously passed away before the end of, he passed away uh, well after the British had outlawed the slave trade, but well before the actual end of the slave trade. And understanding what had happened after him, I think he would have pointed to all the people who came after him. And so the classic quote uh, that Churchill uses, this is, not, this is not the end, it's not even the beginning of the end, it's the end of the beginning. I think that is the way that we should see Wilberforce. Uh, we'll talk about this in a minute, but one of the things that's particularly fascinating is 50 years later, they have a vote on the floor of parliament to defund the entire suppression effort. And the movement that he put together lasted 20, 30 years beyond his death, to the point where it still was dominating British politics so that it could endure, it could endure a vote like that. Things that we know, markets don't just end. That was a major market. There is, a, there is a glaring open question, why did it go away? And so therefore, we need, to, we need to be able to answer that question. So putting this in context, right? This is the history of the slave trade, right? If you look at this, 1808, there's a lot that comes after that, right? I mean, and really, if you go by volume, that's about a third to a half of the slave trade that happens after it's outlawed. That should be pretty shocking, right? This puts us in a very, very different context. Between 1808 and 1867, if you look at it, that is a trade that's alive and well and it's fighting. It's fighting to stay alive. It's not, it's not just gradually going away. This isn't some policy implementation process. If you look at those jagged peaks after that, that's, that is a signature of a network that is trying to fight back. It's trying to reconstitute. Every time they pin it, it's trying to reboot. So diving a little bit deeper, right? This is, this is the, the slave trade by nations. One of the things that we'll notice is that the British participation, and by and large, the American participation ends in 1807 and 1808. That's when it's outlawed. It becomes a Portuguese and a Spanish trade, but it is, it is as alive and well as ever, primarily populating um, Brazil, but also Cuba. So out, after the slave trade ban, half a century, 2 million captives move, 2.3 million captives actually, and the peak volume of captives it rivals, it rivals the historical trade, right? Something major happened there. Something, something happened to kill that market. So a tale of two films. We've, we've seen Amazing Grace, right? There's a piece during Amistad, right? There's this, do you guys remember the film Amistad by any chance? So I will, I will save you the video clip then, but the Captain Fitzgerald character, it's fiction, um, but, but he's actually an amalgam of three different characters that we're gonna talk about. Right, so do you guys remember the scene at the end where they find the slave fortress in Sierra Leone and it's, it's climactic, yeah. you know, they, they, the issues, they know where it is all, all, all along, right? It's, we'll talk about sovereignty and the complexities of sovereignty, they just can't go after it. It's on somebody else's territory, right? So think about the imperial paradox there, right? Is they are observing somebody else's sovereignty which is saying that they have to wait for captives to board ships before they can go after them. They cannot attack the fortresses because that belongs to an African king. And unless that becomes part of the British Empire, they can't do anything about it. This paradox of sovereignty when going after networks, right? We know that illicit networks love to live in the seams. This creates a sovereignty problem, right? It finds the places where sovereignty is weak and then it hides there. And so one of the things that happens in the course of this case study is the British will have to figure out how to close those gaps in sovereignty, sometimes playing fairly fast and loose with the rules, and sometimes actually <clears throat> with the participation of other nations violating sovereignty and having other nations facilitate that specifically us, we'll talk about that. Um, but big poli-sci concepts that keep coming up here, right? Big international security concepts, um, and obviously there's an intelligence backstory to all of this, right? So, pressing on, right? Here's a quote from 1845, and I'm gonna actually read the full quote, um, because it's pretty shocking. 
Here we are on the most miserable station in the, whole, in the wide world, an, attempting an impossibility, the suppression of the slave trade. We look upon the whole affair out here as a complete humbug. You may make treaties in London and send the whole combined squadrons of English and, England and France to the coast, and then you will not have gained your object. So long as a slave worth only a few dollars here fetches 80 or 100 pounds in America, men and means will be found to evade the strictest blockade. The absurdity of blockading a coast 2,000 miles in extent must be obvious to the meanest capacity. Even if successful, you must be prepared to continue the force forever in a day, or your labor is lost. For the moment the ships are removed, the business commences. That's 1845. That's after trying this for 40 years. And you have a Royal Navy captain saying, let's give up. This thing's impossible, right? Yes, sir. Just a simple question. What was the interest of Britain in suppressing the slave trade? What was the, the interest of Britain in doing that? So that's a fascinating question. And actually, there's a huge historiographical debate on this, right? The traditional assumption coming up to uh, Eric Williams in 1940, or 1945, where he writes his thesis called Capitalism and Slavery, prior to that, everybody assumed that it was basically ethics and morals, that the British actually decided that this is not something they wanted to do. Eric Williams is a Marxist historian. He challenges this. He basically says that what the British are trying to do is to move capital. And they're trying to reallocate capital between different portions of the economy. They realize that the slave trade is dying out. They want to move towards industrialization, and they use it. They use it as an accelerant to just move uh, move capital around. Seymour Drescher uh, comes back with his uh, 19, 1970s thesis called Econocide and demolishes Williams' thesis. He basically points out the British had everything to lose. It actually worked directly counter to their economic interests. And he brings everybody back to the idea that actually no, it was ethics. It was. Wilberforce catalyzes, Wilberforce in the Clapham Circle catalyzes sense that this is not who they want to be as an empire. That's not who they want to be, um, that's not who they want to be for the world, and they set out to do this. Once the British are out of the trade, they then have an economic interest, right? So the British basically, once they break the habit, they don't want anyone else making money off of it, right? So, so they are committed to this course of action by, by about 1810. The issue they run into is by 1850 that they are they are the sole person suppressing it, so they are actually um, subsidizing everybody. There's a huge free rider problem, which we're actually part of that free rider problem, where um, the everyone knows that they are going to try to suppress the trade, so everyone lets them pay for it. And 1845, 1850, re, remembering that graph, it looks pretty hopeless. The way that we talk about the war on drugs was the way that people talked about suppression of the slave trade in, in the 1840s. It seems impossible. You can't kill a market. Markets just come right back. Um, how are you going to beat this thing? It just pays for itself, right? Yes, ma'am. Also, um, I learned this at the British Maritime Museum in Greenwich. They taught me this. <laughs> so <laughs> it's on them. Uh, they, during this time period, they took millions of Indians and they shipped them as indentured servants to the Caribbean to work as indentured servants um, as on the plantations and such as indentured servants. So, so uh, while they weren't technically slaves, um, they did ship millions of indentured servants around the coast of, of Africa um, to the Caribbean. Um, so they, they still made money from people who were very poor, but they taught me this at the very time. Yeah, yeah, so and, and that's actually a huge point. I to know that this was part of their history, too. Right, so, so we're going to talk about that at the end. Yeah. There's something called the Cooley trade, which is what you're talking about. Okay. It's really the yeah. transition from historical force-based slavery into fraud-based slavery, which is which is more the current human, tra um, the sort of prevalent human trafficking model, and obviously I defer to you on, 
on the shape of that, but if that's Sorry, to go back to my question, was it a way for the British to, to, to weaken the United States? Uh, no, they actually found us an irritant during most of this, but, but really, for the United States, strangely enough, um, one of the few, few issues that the United States could agree on uh, with regards to slavery is that the United States, both North and South, opposed the slave trade, strangely enough. Um, South for, I would say South primarily for protectionist reasons, is that if you can't import, then if you already have holdings, and holdings are are perpetuated through birth, then, then there's a protectionist logic. The North, I would argue for moral reasons, but I think that's actually simplistic. One of the things we'll find is that Northern shipyards are actually the primarily, primary beneficiaries of the illegal slave trade. Is that Northern shipyards are actually making the clipper ships that are able to run the British blockade. So um, the Anglo-American relationship is fascinating, but strangely enough, we actually do have common cause with them um, to the point where there is some tacit co cooperation uh, diplomatically, and also our two navies try to try to cooperate even when their their leadership is trying to undercut each other. One of the ways to view the Anglo-American relationship during this period, I would argue, is we are the rising power. We act kind of like China. We participate in, in, in British international institutions, typically with the intent of undermining them. Um, and we also love to play free rider. We love to sort of act the you know responsible party, but we are generally obviously have a tie into authoritarianism in terms of structural slavery as as the uh, slaveholding republic the, that thesis argues, and so you know, until we we address that issue, they I would argue they view us the way we view China now, a, a, a semi-authoritarian rising power, which is a very complex and awkward way to see it, but I think that's how they would say it. Could, I'm sorry, but could it also be because they foresaw? I mean. For example, at the the case of Amistad, I mean, it, that was almost like the trigger that there's going to be a civil war. Could they have seen this civil war occurring and basically deciding they don't want to be part of this? I know Charles Francis Adams was in 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 England all throughout our civil war, arguing for them, encouraging them not to join um, the Confederacy. And uh, George Mason's grandson was in. Um, in England, doing the very opposite, encouraging, encouraging them to join the Confederacy. But I, I, I can't help but think that they kind of foresaw that somehow in our future as a, a major civil war occurring over this institution and not wanting to be part of it. I, I, I can't help but think that they, they had enough foresight, I think, that they had enough understanding of man's nature to say that there's going to be a war and we don't Really want to be part of it. Well, so so their relationship to the U.S. Civil War is complex, right? Because the dictates of realpolitik actually says it, say, say that they would want it, and so Palmerston can actually see that there is a British logic in the U.S. Civil War. There's actually a British logic in siding with the South, both on economics and on really primarily their win is to keep us crippled. Is that if the South were successful in the Civil War, the U.S. the rise of the U.S. as a great power probably doesn't happen the way that, that it did happen. And so if he wants to if he wants to kneecap the rising American Republic, then he can do that, right? And he actually considers this, right? I mean, so his logic is actually in maintaining a weak United States that, that can't challenge British power. But the South was the primary user of British made goods. Right, and so there's an economic logic, right? But but I think there's they actually they actually demur from a from their geopolitical logic. Mostly because there is still enough of an abolitionist lobby in Britain that there's just no way they can solve the side with the state power. Like there's, and um, Palmerston, we'll see later, but Palmerston has some pretty 
for all the complexities you know that, that he is and this is one of the things we'll keep seeing is these normal stories on imperialism bad and all these things right that they don't really these stories are very complex right Palmerston's a very complex person and he um, he basically just can't support his equality south uh, and he can't go to the British public and do that so so the British are torn on their view on our civil war um, but slavery does weigh into it in sort of a roundabout way. I think their 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 awareness of the road to war and their concern about it, I think you might give them more credit than I do. I think they're aware of it, but they're basically letting this play out, right? Like we're, imagine how we would see a Chinese civil war, right? We'd be sort of like, oh, well, that's bad for them. It's not a fair way to say that, but I mean, they, they view, we are the thorn in their side. So generally their foreign policy establishment is gonna view bad things for us as sure whatever. Yes, sir. Can we go back maybe about 157 or 160 years prior to the 1650 where the slave trade was actually initiated by the Dutch? Okay. And from Sierra Leone, because there's a 33 mile um, walkway that goes down to the shipping yards at those times where they were living with slaves. But here it is, is that didn't the British actually hijack the slave trade from the Dutch at one point and then started initiating um, their slave trade until they weren't back in 1807 trying to block it and everything. I mean, are you, I don't know if you're aware of that, but I think it has to go back to what really started it. So I think you're hitting on one of the really fundamental challenges here, right? Which is, what is historical forces versus human agency, right? Like that, that we typically anthropomorphize the state and say the state had a, had a will to do X, Y, or Z, right? But, but I think in reality, a lot of these things are just a drunkard's walk. I mean, the, the, rise, the rise of the institution of slavery has more to do with the mosquito than really with anything else, right? The, the British first wave was Irish, you know, and people couldn't survive, right? So this is actually one of the both fascinating parts, of tragic parts, is the human capacity to exploit opportunity and exploit the weakness of others. But really it isn't this sort of scheme, right? It's just like it, people can do it because they can. One of the really disturbing things and one of the really sad things um, if you look at the, the economy of West Africa during, <clears throat> during the 1850s, there was this idea of, and we'll challenge this later, but how could somebody sell, quote, their own people into slavery, right? The King of Dahomey, is a, the King of Dahomey actually answers the Queen of England by pointing to the Queen of England's treatment of the Irish and said, and basically, I'm saying this a, a little bit crudely, and I don't mean to tread lightly on this, but he says, he says essentially the Irish, the Irish and English look about the same to me, so don't tell me about my own people. Like you guys, you guys can differentiate enough to say I can do things to those that, that group of people. He's like I'm doing the same thing to the avocations and to to a number of other groups. Right? King of Dahomey does not view his slaves as Dahomey, right? He views them as other. This is a uniquely, I mean, a tragically human capability is to designate them. You know, designate those who, from whom we want to take something, those who are vulnerable. And so I think one of the things that we see in the really kind of drunkard's walk, uh, I'm sorry, and so to that point, if you look at the economics of West Africa, if you look at the income from slave trading, it's actually fairly minor. I mean, this is actually pretty tragic if you think about it, right? It wasn't that people were doing this out of inspiration, it was they were doing it because they could. They were doing it because why not? And so this is actually one of the profound difficulties that we see throughout this case is humanity's ability to, humanity's frankly indifference to the suffering of others and humanity's ability to other anybody from whom they want to take something. So things that run throughout this case is that trend, which is the darker sides of humanity, with the brighter sides of humanity is that you have these sailors 
and you have these cross-cultural brokers that do these tremendously redemptive acts, right? They do these things on behalf of others and they keep coming back, right? So this case study brings out some of the worst and some of the best in humanity. And I think that's one of the things that's so compelling about it, is it is this thankless fight that you have these British sailors keep coming back to. At times, I mean, they're risking their lives. They take 6.7% casualties per year due to malaria. Mm. It's a third, or it's three times the highest, or the death rate in the West Africa posting is three times the death rate of any other posting in the Royal Navy. And you have crews that come back for three or four tours voluntarily, and they take career hits to do it. Something causes these people to come back and say, this is my fight, I'm gonna win it, right? And, but yet, the other side of human nature is always evident also, right? Where somebody is weak and I can take something from them. So the, that is woven throughout this case study. So I mean, that's a long way around to address that. It's, you're right that there was some transfers, but I would argue that um, one of the fascinating uh, questions is actually, it's the rise of the US shipping industry. If the US had not banned the slave trade in 1808, there's an argument to say that the US would have actually inherited the trade. Um, it would have been the primary mover in it, um, based on how commercial shipping went. Um, and obviously it was US, uh, we'll talk about this later, but it was US ships that were actually doing it. It would have made more sense for it to remain US firms if we had not allowed it. So, is that, is it? Yep. Okay. We should probably move a little forward. Cool. Sorry. <laughs> Meanwhile, in, in the period around 1830, this was rising mainly in Virginia, you had the establishment of Liberia. Uh, and also, in 1830, the vote the, in the Virginia uh, General Assembly of just to abolish slavery lost by only one vote. Right, although I would recommend um, the, the U.S. experience of the institution of slavery actually is generally unhelpful in understanding this case study. And this is no, one I'm of the stranger not things about it. Is, it but but yeah. I'm just saying, you have this parallel yes. movement going on, whether it's connected to the other or not. Yeah, absolutely. So, putting this back in context, tens of millions of pounds, I mean, that's billions of dollars, right? They spent a sixth of the Royal Navy for 50 years trying to kill this thing, right? I mean, this is at the height of their power. That's, sh that's shocking, right? I mean, this is, that is on the level of what we spend on counterterrorism, right? I mean, this is, that is probably another useful analogy. Um, 4,000 sailors, I mean, that's primarily due to malaria, but put this in context, right? How does somebody die from an IED? It's inglorious, it's random, it's, it's due to transit, there's nothing, there's, it's not sort of a shipboarding, there's nothing glorious about that. They're dying of malaria, which the closest equivalent, I think, would be an IED, right? You're just, you're just there, you happen to get unlucky, right? This is, this is not a glorious way for sailors to die. Um, and Parliament almost gives up in 1850. So, pressing ahead, like, this is, this is the magnitude of, that, of this campaign, which is one of the reasons why I find it fascinating that it's so understudied. Um, so talking about today, um, I'm gonna probably short some of the theory just because I think the discussion's been more helpful than the theory, but uh, we're still gonna have to touch the bases on that just so we have the context for it. And then we're gonna talk about sea stories until we run out of time. Um, <laughs> this story, I think, it, it does challenge categories, right? It, it profoundly challenges categories, and I think this is what's so helpful about it, right? The idea of, of race as we understand it as Americans does not make any sense in West Africa for, for any of this, right? So let's put this in context. One of the vignettes that I find fascinating is in, in 1840, there's a record of an African, an African slave trading king who goes to the Royal Navy cruisers by way of his broker, who's a cross-cultural, um, half, um, 
half Brazilian, half African um, uh, merchant, right? He goes to the he goes to the Royal Navy cruisers and says, um, essentially, every civilized power has a three nautical mile territorial sea, so I need you to get off my shores, right? You have an African king deploying traditional European law, of, you know, law of nations about territorial seas in order to stop a European cruiser from from preventing him from slave trading, right? If that doesn't invert the way that we we see that story in those categories in a way that just is mind bending, I don't know what it is, right? I mean, this is this case study. It is so fascinating because it does so disrupt these categories so so tremendously. Um, so pressing ahead. One way to see this, and this is a graph of the illegal slave trade broken out by nations, is that there's essentially three different phases. So we're gonna break this down by, by those phases later, but you start with the gray market phase, right? This is, of those 2.3 million, um, 0.8 million run legally. And in, in many cases, the British are held, the British suppression attempt is held as ineffective because it, does, it only recaptures 5% of the captives that go across the Atlantic. One of the things that we'll find is, is that they are, uh, by most historians, they are held liable for not capturing ships that they couldn't legally capture anyways, right? So if you correct it back to they could only go after 1.5 million, realize, and we'll see a lot of this later, as the slave traders adapt, then they start changing their business model to, to, to expose themselves to less risk. And one of the key things that they do is they don't load captives until the very end, right? So the British, two out of three British captures are actually capturing empty ships. They're capturing ships with shackles, too much food, uh, slave decks, the, they're capturing ships with prima facie evidence of, of slaving, but they are not capturing ships with captives on board. Um, so really, if you multiply that through, you'll find that the British are actually about 30 to 40% effective in terms of interdiction. That's pretty significant. Um, but in order to get there, they have to go through a diplomatic effort of, of weaving together this treaty network. And Jenny Martinez at Sanford, Sanford Law School talks a lot about this, where she actually points at the British effort to build this treaty network is one of the major keys in the rise of international law. Is that prior to this, there's a huge debate between the United States and the British on this, where the United States would prefer to just call it piracy and say, basically there is, pirates enjoy no protection, so therefore anyone can go after a pirate. The British actually want to make positive law about it. We don't want to be part of any British positive law because we're basically sabotaging everything they're trying to do. That has very little to do with slavery. It has everything to do with you know, Anglo-American competition. But Jenny Martinez points out that that effort to build this treaty network, that's really the first time where they're building um, a lot of this official law. Once they, once they lock that in, then you actually have a suppression effort. The Brit once the British can go after essentially every ship, every slaver that's on the seas, you start seeing it more about tactics at that point. The slavers are no longer looking for legal tactics, they're looking for physical tactics. What are the fastest ships? What's, what, what flags will let me get away with it? What, what business practices allow me to isolate myself from risk? And then once, once the British are effective at going after, uh, going after uh, those ships, then the British actually have to do the hard work of trying to change the economy of West Africa, essentially. This is where this gets very difficult to navigate in terms of how we normally think about imperialism is the British get very involved in succession struggles. They get very involved in essentially imperial politics and they're pulled in by their desire to suppress the slave trade. Um, the British, politi British politics can be very cynical in, in especially in China, but one of the things that's very, very difficult to navigate here is that you have, you have captains who essentially are pulling the foreign office in 
due to their desire to suppress the trade, which essentially they have to go inland to do that. That, that kicks off a lot of uh, what we now understand to be the scramble for Africa. The first wave of that was actually lit off by the, the um, slavery suppression effort. Mm -hmm. um, so that contextualizes that piece of history in some really fascinating ways. One way to also think about this is that there are three layers to this story. You have the leaders, and these are who we typically think about. These are the Wilbur Forces of Palmerston's, right? In this case, if you look at the, the leaders on the suppression side, you have these, these major figures of British imperialism, Palmerston. You also have a lot of African leaders. A lot of African leaders see the British, the British presence as a way to actually adjudicate secession struggles. If you're, bidding, if you're bidding for leadership and you don't like who's in charge, bid to the British, because they might, if you bid to the British and basically agree to ban the slave trade, they might back you against whoever's in charge right now. So one of the things that we see is that the British presence actually enables indigenous agency in some really interesting ways. By being there, they allow bidding opportunities for, uh, for challengers. Um, similarly, you see, um, you see a lot of multinational corporations. So, Pedro de Zuleta, which I'm sure I'm butchering his name, um, he runs a multinational corporation that's actually backing a lot of the slave trade. And so when we think about this, think organized crime, is that you actually have a lot of these sort of mafia tie-ins, right? So essentially Zuleta is, one way to think about him is as a mafia kingpin. Well, he has, a, he has some deep relationships with a lot of the African kings. Um, where they're backing him, he's backing them. It's very reciprocal, um, both sides are using each other. Um, but all of that is facilitated by these brokers, who I think are actually the most interesting um, tier. They tend to be cross-cultural. One of the things that, that we see that's very strange is a lot of people who will be rescued off of slave ships actually get into slaving. We would not, the way we normally would think about that, that makes us very uncomfortable, but if you think about it, you can really make a lot of money if you understand both sides of the enterprise, and if you grew up in Sierra Leone, you speak English, and also you have a background, then you can make money. Uh, that's very difficult to sort of stomach, but that was true. Um, so you see that there's a lot of slave brokers um, are, that are working for African kings that are cross-cultural. In one case, there is a, uh, <clears throat> there's a child of a British slaver captain and an African princess who, who takes on a, a key role with, uh, basically is held on by retainer by an African king. Um, D'Souza, who there's actually a, her, her talk film about, uh, loosely about him, called Cobra Verde, which I highly recommend. I think it's really fascinating. It's very dark. It's more her talk. But... He actually backs King Dezo of Dahomey against one of his rivals and brings him weapons. So he put he, he helps Gezo get in charge. Gezo keeps him on as retainer throughout throughout the entire city, right? On the other side, the Sierra Leone Creoles who be, who have been who have been um, interdicted off of slave ships and grow up in a British colony, they play an outsized role as well. So this also helps reframe a lot of British imperialism. We'll talk about Crowther in a second, but Crowther is um, is taken as a slave. The British interdicted ship, he grows up in Sierra Leone. He then goes to Oxford, becomes a bishop of, um, bishop of the Anglican Church, goes back and then leads the colonization effort back into, uh, back into Lagos. So if you think about that, you have two very different interpretations that there is gonna be a synthesis between European and African, right? There's no going back. But you have two very different visions of that synthesis. You have the slave brokers who basically see the economic possibilities of exploitation, and you have Crowther, who, who sees a very different synthesis between certain parts of, of British, or rather Anglican ethics, and what West African can become, which is 
ultimately Crowther's vision wins out. One of the things that's fascinating is both D'Souza and Crowther, Crowther's offspring play major roles in independence movements uh, 150 years later. So strangely enough, both of those figures on both, both of the sides that they were on end up shaping West African history. And then you have the sailors. So the sailors are really the tip of the iceberg. Um, but really every time the sailors are backing the brokers, the brokers are backing the leaders. Those three tiers are happening at once. That's something that we do know from network warfare is that all of, all of that is happening in parallel. So part of the challenge is thinking about how do you engage leaders, brokers, and, and foot soldiers essentially at the same time. So pressing on. I have a saying, it takes a network to defeat a network. That's one of the classic sayings that, uh, that, that has come out of the last 15 years. And in this case, it very much did. That there was essentially three parts of the slave trading network. It was a capture network in Africa, transit defenses, which, which, which um, insulate the Middle Passage from being interdicted, and then the exploitation network, which is primarily about um, how do you make the sale in the new world, backed up by a logistics network, which is partially in New York, partially um, in London, partially in, uh, in Rio de Janeiro. And they're very difficult to get at. The British actually tried to do several prosecutions, think organized crime again, mafia, mafia, money, money laundering, that kind of stuff. It's very difficult to make anything stick. Um, but those three pieces are what lets the slave trade go. There's also a fundamental measurement problem. You can do these top order metrics, right? But the problem is that they're deceptive. If you're not capturing a lot of ships, is it because a lot of ships aren't going, or is it because you're just not effective at capturing the ships that are going? Capturing ships is a terrible metric, if you think about it, right? Because either it says you're doing great or you're doing terrible. If you've suppressed a trade, you're doing great. If you haven't suppressed a trade, you're doing terrible. So really, those second tier metrics, those brokers, that's really where, the, where your best data is gonna come from. But essentially what you have to do is that by hitting that top tier, you see the structures in the middle tier. So think about a sonar ping, right? The top tier creates effects in that brokerage tier. That brokerage tier is really where your movement is. So one way to think about this, there's a fundamental shape. Remember how we saw that graph and it got jagged towards the end? That's that side of that network getting hit and rebooting. The fundamental shape here is a sawtooth. You do an intervention, the intervention causes an impact on the network, but then the network takes on an additional form. It starts rebooting, and then it goes through this recovery period. So if you look at that, um, we talked about the British improving this boarding treaty with a lot of diplomacy. Um, not to get too far into the, uh, into the math nerd weeds, but that's an uh, interrupted time series regression discontinuity, and it's highly statistically significant for every time the British do an intervention, they essentially make that sawtooth shape. The slave trade, um, the slave trade, they identify a form of it, they, may, they legally lock it out, and it reboots. Um, one of the analogies here, and we'll talk about this later, is imagine building a dam. Every time you put a rock in the dam, the water just flows right back around it. So the great irony, we talked about those first order metrics are not very effective. The great irony is that you may have 90 to 95% of the rocks in the dam, but all the water is still moving. So if you go by water flow, that's not an effective metric. If you go by deep structures and how many options they have to reboot to, that's actually the effective metric. And as we look towards the end, that shape starts getting jaggedy. They start running out of options. The thing the British do is that every time that they identify a structure, they'll lock it out. So they make the slave trade, they take the second mover, identifying wherever the slave trade went, and as soon as the slave trade establishes a structure, they'll, they'll disrupt it and then they'll freeze it. They'll leave some kind of state behind legal structure, intelligence structure, military structure. They'll, they'll put something in place that means that the slavers can't, can't go back. So we see that, you see those saw teeth getting jagged towards the end. That's when they're actually doing damage. 
but if you go by those first order metrics, right, it looks like they're ineffective. So that's where the second order is really uh, the effective part. Yes, ma'am. Just a quick question. Um, the French outlawed slavery in all of the colonies in 1848. Their, um, their Wilberforce was, what was the name of the, oh, I lived in Anyway, they, they had equivalent of their Wilberforce in their parliament. Um, during, up until 1848, they had Philip Dorleon as the head of their government, and they had a constitutional monarchy kind of, and it was, um, I don't think he was supportive of the slave trade. Now my question is, how, what were the French doing at this time? Because they're another major naval power at this time. And what was the Catholic Church doing? Mm -hmm. What, so, what was their position towards that? Right, so two very good questions. The French are right here. They're this blue chunk. Okay. Um, the French relationship with the slave trade, the French had basically already got out of the trade. Napoleon was pretty ambivalent on it. They kind of went back and forth on it for a little while. But the British pressure just wasn't worth it. And after the British um, disentrenched Napoleon in the second time, they, they make a treaty with whoever replaces him to basically say, look, no more slave trade. Okay. Um, so... <clears throat> The French experience with slavery, slavery and the slave trade end up being, the way to think about their relationship is primarily through birth rates, as ghastly as that is, is that the US was able to decouple the institution of slavery from the slave trade because we had stable birth rates. Um, the reason why the Portuguese are so wedded to it is because Brazil doesn't have stable birth rates by this point. Um, and also the Spanish don't have stable, the way that uh, sugarcane production works is it's just far more deadly. It's you die in four years. And so you cannot, there's, there's not a, you cannot repopulate that through having children. And so the modes of production for the French, the French are basically out of that business, so, so the French have essentially decoupled the institution from the trade. Um, so the, the late reliance on the trade has to do with just brutality of, of sugar plantations and also just Brazil had not been filled yet. Yeah, the, that's church, the church, the Catholic Church's position on slavery? Was kind of ambivalent. Mm -hmm. um, kept supporting it. I mean, Georgetown University traded in slaves. On the institution of slavery or the slave trade? Uh, difference, I guess. Yeah, the trade they, and slavery itself, right? Most people, even supporters of the slavery, uh, even supporters of slavery, um, found moral reasons to basically call the trade abominable because the trade was sort of the most particularly grotesque part of it. So you actually see in many cases that, um, obviously there's also some early Catholic uh, Catholic thinkers that opposed the trade. So I would argue that they were, they were, the Anglicans were clearly, or really the Methodists were obviously against it. They, the Catholics, I think you have thinkers on both sides. Um, I think that you're right that in general the opinion is pro, well, the papacy would observe, you know, consider yeah. every soul on the planet is subject to the dominion of the papacy, so. Right, right, right. I mean, there's more, there's more power distance in, in the early built into it. Um, but, but I would say I think the trade, you're not going to find that many moral advocates of the trade, um, especially at that late date. So. They were Christians. What's that? <laughs> the slavers were not Christians, period. Yeah, I mean, they are, the, the way to think about this, you, I mean, or anything. Yeah, but yeah, they're pirates, right? I mean, yeah, they are they are not seen by anybody yeah, as somebody. It's the way we would look at drug dealers. Yeah. Like nobody views them as noble. Yeah. yeah. Um, so, 
If we look at basically as the British start building this network, right? They start building treaties in Africa. They start building treaties in the New World, and they start ex extinguishing the use of. Uh, they start going after the the ability to buy slaves, and also um, the institution of slavery itself in, in several cases. <clears throat> but if you notice, as the British expand this and take over the space, that sawtooth gets raggedier. It has less places to go to. The British expand to fill the network left behind by the slave trade. And that's essentially what locks it out. So we see this ratchet effect, right? Every time the British make a treaty, you see how the slave trade bounces around. Essentially, they're funneling it. And they're running it out of options. Um, and we'll see how this looks geographically, right? But, but ultimately, the end game here is they're swapping path dependency. So this comes from an economist called Elster. He talks about uh, drug addiction, right? But essentially, you have a, a national addiction to uh, unfree labor. And the way to think about that is that in the short term, it, the switching costs are always high, but if you can suppress it long enough to actually get on a different road, um, then you don't really go back, right? And so one of the key things that's happening here is that the British are subsidizing free labor in Brazil, essentially. If you're a factory owner and you're having to decide between an unfree factory, which is very possible, right? One of the points that uh, Drescher brings out is that in a kind of side, it's like you could easily imagine the institution of slavery continuing through the Industrial Revolution. In fact, in many ways, factories lend themselves to it, right? I mean, the idea that this was a plantation construct, he's like, it could have easily rebooted. It was a suppression of the trade and the suppression of the institution that caused it to not persist. If you look at, if you look at how you know communist countries pursue labor on you know collective factories, it's very unfree, right? I mean, this is that model because it could have easily been done. And so, one of the things that one of the things that was significant, if you're a British factory owner, <coughs> do you? you really can't build a half-free factory, right? You can assume free labor or you can assume, assume slave labor. But if you look at the British commitment to suppression, it doesn't make any sense to build a slave labor factory, right? You, you see that you're gonna pay a very high price for that over time, and it makes more sense to retool your, your industrial base to assume free labor. So as the British suppress this, they're actually changing the demand function. Yes, sir? Unless the birth rate is keeping it alive. Right, right, exactly. So if the birth rate can sustain it, right? And that's actually one of the things that leads us on the path to war. Right is that we could indefinitely sustain the institution. Um, this was one of the things that was interesting in sectional politics is there was an assumption that slavery had to grow or else it would die. It turns out demographically that probably wasn't true, but both North and South assumed that to be true, which is why the uh, um, why pro-slavery politicians were so expansionist is they assumed they needed to take more territory. In Cuba and Brazil, this was not yet true. Exactly. Okay. So that's ultimately the end game, is that they're actually doing, they're swapping path dependencies. <clears throat> so first phase, building that, I think the dive fill construct, I mean, we're, we're at IWP, so I figured that that would be a safe and comfortable construct. Uh, but uh, for, for, uh, for the benefit of everybody, it's diplomatic, uh, informational, military, economic, financial, intelligence, and legal, right? So the British are actually doing all of these. Really the first phase, like we were talking about, is that treaty network. There's an abolition movement internationally um, that, that, had, that gets some wins around the edges. Um, military, this is actually a difficult period for the, for the British. They don't really quite know how to do this. They don't have the right weapons. They don't have the right ships. They don't have the right tactics. They don't have the right bases. The slavers handily beat them on the sea, with a couple of key exceptions. But that's where they do their, <clears throat> their learning. Financial, the British use of the post-Napoleonic war debt is, is huge. That's how they extract treaties from the Spanish and Portuguese who have no desire to give them a treaty. The British use the, the war debt from the Napoleonic Wars as a cudgel, and they make everybody have to sign treaties based on that, except for us, because we weren't really part of that. 
That's not true. But we weren't directly part of it in a way where we owed them money. Um, so, and then they're building human networks and the law of nations starts coming into play. So, this this brig is pretty pretty fascinating. And how are we on time? We're we're doing fun. Okay. So I am going to read. Um, I'm going to read a excerpt from uh, from the dissertation that actually deals with with this ship because it's such a such a fascinating case study um, in the trade. So, um, as background, very quickly, the Black Joke um, was one of the few early British ships that was successful. That, that was successful, right? The Royal Navy sends them sends them frigates under the assumption that frigates are good commerce traders, right? Slave traders go to Baltimore Clippers very very quickly. Those are blockade runners. Think about American shipyards have had a history of running British blockades since forever, right? I mean, we have built our shipping industry under the assumption of British naval dominance. So we have these very specifically built very fast ships, right? The slavers start using Baltimore Clippers. So when the British send frigates down, yeah, if you're going against a galleon, sure, a frigate's fine. But they are well outclassed by the slavers, right? The slavers show up and just the British have all the wrong stuff, right? One one analogy would would be think about how ill-prepared we were for counterinsurgency. We showed up with all the wrong weapons, right? That's essentially what's happening during this period. Yes, sir? Captured ships, if they ever captured the Clippers in the British, what did they do with the captured ships? Did they ever convert some of those to... Uh to pursue slave ships? So that's a fascinating question, and that's actually exactly what we're going to talk about. So the um, so the Black Joke was actually the most famous of these, right? It's interesting how this came about. Is the British would occasionally capture a slaver doing something stupid, staying in port, catches a bad wind. Um, one of the things that's interesting, they use a lot of sweeps, which are basically big oars. So in many cases, the British just want it more, right? They, they'll capture a slaver that's in doldrums, and they will just row harder and then they'll capture the ship, right? So, but in general, you know, the British get some captures around the edges. Well, the way that frigates work back then is that the captains are paid through through captures, right? Is that the, the Admiralty will pay them based on the capture, and the Admiralty will then sell the ship. This is very frustrating to the British captains because the slavers buy the ships, right? So the British figure this out fairly quickly, get very frustrated about it. Um, but at some point, some of the British captains actually start buying their own ships. Right, is that they have to put them up for option for auction. So in this case, the Black Joke is one of the is probably the most legendary ship of the period, where it had such a reputation with slavers is that slavers would go all the way down to Angola to avoid it when they heard it was in town. Right. So it probably did more damage through its reputation and through the costly countermeasures the slavers took against it than it actually did by capturing slavers. Right. Which is one of these points is that think about a flat network. They don't actually get to aggregate tactics. They don't have conferences. They just go on rumors. So if you get something really scary, it'll cause a lot of rumors. So actually it's that rumor mill that causes that to be a very good you know, deterrence weapon, for lack of a better term. He captures, <clears throat> so this ship is one of the better ships that he finds. He captures it and then he uses it as a tender to his ship, right? So he's not allowed to make it a warship because he can't commission it, which is why it's Her Majesty's Brig, not Her Majesty's ship, right? Um, but he, the way he uses it as a tender, it, typically tenders are going to carry supplies or whatever, right? So the supply it carries is a 16-inch pivot gun and a fully armed crew and basically nothing else. <laughs> so he strips this thing down, makes it an interdictor, right? And, and it ends up being tremendously successful. So this is out of uh, this is this is out of the dissertation, but I think this one exchange is is really pretty fascinating. So. Well, history is written at the operational tactical level. Perhaps you might in, in, indulge my excursion in the, or, well, history is written at the operational and strategic level. Perhaps you might indulge this, this excursion into the tactical. 
Over the course of the campaign, there were relatively few attempts on the part of the slavers to meet the British crews in direct naval combat. This is notable as the British relied extensively on small ships, and in many cases, the slavers would have had, at least on paper, the stronger force in an engagement. I believe that one of the signal achievements of this period of suppression was the establishment of clear tactical dominance of the cruisers over the slavers in naval combat. Um, the reputation get garnered by um, the, the Black Joke and the Fair Rosamond, which was another one of the Baltimore Clippers, turned into interdictors. Um, set the foundation for tactical narrative amongst the slavers that the cruisers could be evaded, tricked, and sometimes outrun, but they could not be outfought. So the engagement between the Black Joke and the Almirante, this was in uh, 18, uh, 1831, would have been uh, common among mariners on both sides of the battle as memorialized in art and articles. Uh, decades later. In purely technical sailing terms, the Black Joke's success was remarkable as it was handily outgunned and outclassed by the slaver the Almirante, which was a formidable vessel with a competent crew, which by rights could have and should have won the engagement. The success of the cruiser, the manner in which it succeeded, and the extent to which the lore of the battle was retold amongst the sailors at the time makes a battle worth retelling here. So the Black Joke and the Almirante were both fast sailing brigs of 200 and 360 tons, respectively. Still small ships, but the Almirante is really more more uh, proper frigate. Um, Almirante is pierced for 20 cannons and mounted 14 heavy guns, um, 10 18-pounders and four long 9-pounders, so it had a huge broadside. The Black Joke had a significant lighter armament. It had one, that one 18-pounder 18, 18 pivot gun, but a pivot gun you can point forward or sideways, this ends up becoming a huge tactical advantage. Um, both crews were well crewed. The Royal Navy crew um, crews of this period were experienced in the Polynesian <coughs> Wars. They were, I mean, really probably some of the best, if not the best, fleet of sail or sailors of the age of fighting sail that you would have ever had. They're all, you know, they've all seen combat. Um, the Almirante actually had a fairly, fairly uh, well-led crew also, where in the after-action report, the British captain doesn't find any flaws in his handling of the vessel. He, he says that... <laughs> Well, one correction, he has one flaw, he doesn't mount aft chasers, he doesn't put two lines backwards, that ends up proving decisive. Um, so, Almirante, Almirante outguns them two to one, outcrews them two to one, really, I mean, they should have won. Um, so, the battle begins, this is based on, on the after-action report written by the captain of the Black Joke, but uh, it's, uh, <clears throat> he does a pretty good job recounting that. So as they intercept the Almirante, they discover not a soul to be seen on deck. The ship was in good fighting order. It had already thrown overboard its lumber and cut its anchor to make, make best speed, being well handled for the moment she commenced the action. Few men had taken more precaution than the captain of the Almirante did. As the fighting commenced, the Almirante turned and fired its broadside at the Black Joke, which missed high with round shot, solid cannonball, in an attempt to dismast the Black Joke. They're, attempt, uh, they're attempting to knock off its mast that, that leaves them dead in the water and... and uh, essentially uh, dead to rights. Had she been successful, obviously, the Almirante would have uh, won the engagement. But this results in furious maneuvering between the two vessels with the Almirante trying to turn into the Black Joke, and the Black Joke actually getting right on the tail of the Almirante. Essentially, this is more like a fighter plane than, than being handled you know, as in ship-in-the-line combat. The Almirante had loaded up canister and grape shot, but the Black Joke kept its... Uh, tail position for about 15 minutes within uh, within cannon shot range, or within uh, half pistol shot range rather. And um, which 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 they use the, the pivot gun using grape shot, not round shot, because they're trying specifically not to, not to um, get the captives in the hole. They're just trying to clear the decks. So they're being intentional in their use of tactics um, based on obviously not trying to hurt anybody um, 
uh, in prison there. So that brings it within range of Almirante snipers who get up in the rigging. The, the Black Joke uses essentially a shotgun to clear them off of the rigging. Their Marines are shooting at snipers within about that range. Um, as they're using that primary cannon to just clear the decks. Um, the, one of the things that's fascinating is that as they, um, there's 80 crew on the slaver, as, they, as the slaver is fully, um, fully engaged in combat, some of the captives actually um, jump overboard. And one of them is actually rescued by two of the crewmen of the Black Joke while they're under fire. Um, so that's pretty shocking. I mean, like you were saying, it's, that's, there's a movie in there somewhere. Um, and then, uh, but by this point, the, after 15 minutes of this, the Almirante can no longer turn, can no longer really do anything, and they, they, uh, they strike colors, but after this, the Black Joke lost seven injured crew members, um, one of which would later die of the wound, uh, wounds, whereas the Almirante had 13 killed and 15 wounded, which is about half its, uh, about half its crew. Several captives sustained minor injury, but since the canister and grape shot did not penetrate the hole, no captives were mortally wounded, which is pretty shocking. Um, the lopsided battle, given the asymmetry of force at the outset, should have been a shock to the slavers. Moreover, the singular uh, sailing skill of the British crews would have been striking, in the words of Commodore Collier of the Africa Squadron, a highly experienced and decorated veteran of the Napoleonic era. He was actually with Nelson at the Battle of the Nile, so this guy had seen some more. He said, quote, I have never in my life witnessed a more beautiful specimen of good gunnery than the stern and quarter of the Spaniard exhibit. Uh, the Black Joke would have been on sound tactical footing to abandon the chase um, on account of the creative force, and for some reason they were all in. That's pretty shocking. They really should have disengaged, and yet they, they fight this battle and they win. Um, what strikes me is we were talking about the reversal of categories. This is a reversal of technology. There's a story here in the technology of the ships and the social structures of the careers on them that teaches us something about the nature of power and tools. The Black Joke was once a slaver where its sails and rigging unlocked dark human possibilities, which were understood by the Baltimore engineers who made her fast and the slaver crews who manifested those possibilities. Yet when it was seized and claimed by the Royal Navy, other engineers outfitted it with improved weapons and stores and gave it a very different crew to manifest very different human possibilities. The strictures of naval life created a society capable of managing this complex technology, a society that is authoritarian and hierarchical, yet paradoxically allows for autonomy through technical mastery. And yet on the slaver, you have a nautical society juxtaposed with the captor-captive relationship and its own power dynamics. When these societies and ships collide, the two socio-technical systems try to tear each other apart, bone from sinew and rope from plank. As each side tears away layers of flesh and rigging, whatever is left tries to keep the system together while maneuvering for advantage against the adversary system. In the case of the slaver, the entire officer corps needed to be destroyed to cause collapse. But that core could be destroyed because a cruiser was holding a position of physical advantage against it. That position of physical advantage resulted from the social strength derived from the calm of the officers, from the technical mastery of the crew, and from the construction of the craft. These key elements of will, skill, and mechanism can be found together throughout the Atlantic naval struggle in various configurations, human and hardware reshaping the world in concert with each other. And yet the orientation of these constructs can change. So one last piece of this, the, the crew on board the Black Joke is, is one of the Sierra Leone Creoles. He's a recaptive, and one of the ironies of this is that he actually brings shackles with him uh, with the intention of he actually wants to be the one to imprison slavers. So, you know, the crew in sort of body evil humor finds this hilarious. So he's actually the one who imprisons the crew of the Almirante. Mm -hmm. So... If you think about that technology, which was made for a very different purpose, how much there's just this inversion in these purposes. Like we talked about the best of humanity, the worst of humanity, and the tools that make it possible to manifest both. Mm -hmm. That runs throughout this case. So 
Um, one, thing, one thing that gets really fascinating is the U.S. role here, right? So one of the puzzles is that the U.S. The U.S. has this, um, U.S. in earnest actually bans a trade for, for various reasons. The U.S. doesn't really want to participate and is pretty good at clearing out both um, both direct, direct participation and direct capital participation. The ships are obviously a different, different issue. And it has a lot to do with maritime law and it has a lot to do with really a lot of things. Um, one of the things that's really fascinating is that the U.S. actually passes, or one of the things that's paradoxical is the U.S. does not join the British treaty regime, but you don't see that many U.S. flag vessels. Why are the slavers not trying to, to falsify a U.S. flag? You would think that they would, right, because the British can't board U.S. flag vessels until we start digging into the nature of sovereignty, right? So sovereignty is what states make of it, not to steal a scholar that I don't know if I agree with, but, um, but states love giving away their sovereignty when they can't get what they want through their own domestic processes. When their national interests actually conflict with what they can get out of their parliament, sometimes they give away their, their sovereignty in really interesting ways, and they engage in block passing, right? So I will uh, <clears throat> explore this through the US role here. One of the big puzzles is the U.S. passes a very draconian law very early that says slave trading is a hanging offense, right? Given that the U.S. is not exactly sort of one of the first movers on this, why does the U.S. pass a law that it doesn't enforce till 1860, right? It's not a cynical trying to see it be seen as doing something, right? It has this fascinating effect on what happens with the British, right? Is when, is after the U.S. Pass, passes our slave trade ban, the British start unilaterally boarding U.S. white slavers. They start coming to the U.S. Congress and saying the British boarded my vessel. We're in, the, we're in the gear up for the War of 1812, and we do not want it to be about slavery. We want that to be no part of this whatsoever. Mer, you know, sailors' rights do not include slavers' rights, especially because we just helped on that, right? So we pass a law <laughs> making slave trading a hanging offense, and we go to the British and basically say, I'm taking a little bit of license here, we're not telling you to board our vessels, but I'm pretty sure, because obviously there aren't any U.S. flight slavers, but if there were hypothetically, and you were to hypothetically board it and threaten them with extradition, I bet they wouldn't claim to be a U.S. flight slaver anymore. And so one of the things that you find looking through the database, most US flag slavers that are captured, captured by the Royal Navy. We know this is happening. We do basically nothing about it. In fact, in many ways we facilitate it. Um, John Quincy Adams actually tries to pass a boarding treaty law, um, which for just silly political reasons fails. It has actually not that much to do with slavery and more to do with John Quincy Adams' personality. Um, but he doesn't join the, uh, the boarding treaty regime. <clears throat> However, we are doing tacit participation with the British all the way through. We know they're doing this. We're aware they're doing this to the point where they actually go to us with, a, with their, their naval manual that says, by this point, they, by the 1840s, they basically got treaties with everybody but us. There's a section in their manual that says, for non-participating countries, go out of your way to not interfere with them, but you, if you have to, you can board them. And they go to us, they actually run it by a lot of, uh, several of our naval, uh, naval leadership. They're like, do you have a problem with this? And we're like, well, it looks great to me. <laughs> They're like, what if we put the United States on? We're like, no, can't do that. So we are actively enabling the processes by which they're violating our sovereignty because it's in our interest to do so. They get annoyed about this because they realize we're buck passing. And we also bash them routinely in Congress. So we're, get, we're, we're really getting the, a pretty good deal on this. So much so that they foregrounded in some negotiations in the 1840s where they say out loud to, to one of our deputy secretaries of state, so if we understand you correctly, we, you want us to violate your, your sovereignty, take all the risk, and you want to blame us if it goes wrong. Well, yep, what's not to laugh? <laughs> so, yeah, I find that totally fascinating that when we think about sovereignty, we are actually actively enabling the British to violate our sovereignty in ways that affected us.
So that I found particularly uh, particularly fascinating. We end up eventually signing a treaty, and they force us into having to. They get frustrated with this and make us have to actually send some of our own cruisers in 1842. Uh, that's part of what's rash burden is that uh, obviously it's ending the War of 1812, but part of it is the British were pretty still frustrated with our behavior there. Um, so they make us start paying some bills. Interestingly, um, Lyon Seward, which is which is when we actually finally joined the boarding treaty, is because we had to withdraw those ships to be to participate in the Civil War. So therefore, the British use the withdrawal of the African squadron to get their boarding treaty finally, mm. which is never enforced because really there aren't any U.S. flag slavers after that. Um, so, but but it's interesting because there are so few. The slavers know that the U.S. is letting it, letting the British finally. U.S. sovereignty, and they don't use the U.S. flag till the very end when the British are very good at suppressing every other flag. So that's pretty fascinating. I'll skip this one. Um, but the U.S. Africa Squadron, actually, this is an interesting case study also, is that the U.S. Navy does actually play a role. It's fairly ineffective, but you start seeing, you start seeing this idea of individual agency. The captains actually try to make it work. And the weird thing is the cap there's no sectional politics. The captains, both North and South, actually, both of them don't like slavers, and both of them actually try to work with the British in ways that actually gets them in trouble with their bosses. So one of the things that we see is just like in modern special, special operations, people will try to make the mission happen, and, and sometimes will be creative in how they do that. The British do that with technology. They got in trouble for the black joke the Admiralty got very mad about, um, how much sail, sails, it, uh, the price of sail that it had, it called it dangerous. So once they would send these ships up to the Admiralty, they would cut off masts. Once they came back to Sierra Leone, the British captains would use their carpenters to put the masts right back on, and they would tell the Admiralty, come down here and stop me. And the Admiralty, of course, would not do that, so therefore, you know, the British captains were accepting risk, but they were making these custom vessels, right? Which the Admiralty thought was out of spec and unsafe and so on. Um, one, of the, uh, one, of, one of the things that was fascinating is that the, the US Navy captains, found ways to actually collaborate, where they would put a U.S. Navy liaison officer on Royal Navy vessels. Secretary of the Navy found out about that and got mad about it, so that got turned off. They would then do joint cruising. Secretary of the Navy found out about that, and that got turned off. <laughs> but, um, but inevitably, you saw a whole lot of, a whole lot of attempts of these captains to actually work together. Um, one of the most significant ones, Andrew, Andrew Foote, who was an American evangelical, Showed up. His issue was actually uh, it was a prohibition before he showed up as part of the cruising patrol, and he changed his issue to abolitionism. He actually becomes one of the major abolitionists, um, and he basically is able to identify the way by which American vessels are getting to the slavers. Is that it's not that the, the shipyards are ever selling them directly because that's illegal. They're selling them through something called consular consular sea letters. Is that they can sell the ship and then change the flags while it's afloat. Um, that inevitably goes right to the slavers. And so he, he actually starts identifying this, this problem and he starts advocating, he has this book called Slavers in the American Law, um, or I'm sorry, um, Slavers in the American Flag, and in that he advocates for getting rid of these consular sea letters, which is basically this legal loophole, right? They more organized crime than really an attempt to enable insurgency. He finds a problem in it and he actually runs crossways at the US Council in Cuba who's making money off of selling these. So there's, you'll find that, it, that sometimes there's a few very key players in this, right? The way that those ships are getting there are through about three key firms that are, that are essentially selling the licenses and through the US Council in Cuba, he calls that guy up. Um, but by the time anyone's able to do anything about it, he actually ends up being one of the key players uh, in the US Civil War and is part of uh, some of the battles in, in, in uh, Tennessee 
and then he sort of unexpectedly dies, but he's actually expected to be one of the major naval commanders, kind of on the level of Farragut. So he gets his start actually in the slave trade suppression, which is interesting how all of that flows together. Um, technical competition, we talked about US flag vessels are actually the backbone of the slaving fleet. Um, it has more to do with just US vessels are fast and they're profitable, and so Baltimore and New York especially are making a lot of money off of it. Um, one of the key things that Lincoln does, actually against slavery, is he appoints a different district attorney in New York who starts prosecuting um, Portuguese, uh, Portuguese firms that have been um, facilitating the sale, right? Once again, organized crime, right? So it's kind of crazy to think about Lincoln doing stuff in New Jersey against slave trade, but that's, that's exactly what happened. What's really fascinating is that just like the slavers, they're, they're primarily Spanish and Portuguese, but they can't make their own vessels. They're relying on an outside source. The, the Africa squadron is actually in the same spot. And one of the things we talked about special operations acquisitions, a lot of times you're finding some creative, creative sort of leftover resources that were not used well wherever they were at, right? The, the, like a better term, promiscuous acquisitions is a pretty good strategy, right? The British, simultaneously, they don't really care that much about, uh, or the Admiralty's acquisition program, rather, doesn't care about uh, slave trade suppression because they want to build large ships. They view it as a distraction. Once again, kind of like unconventional warfare always is, right? They're like, this is a weird sideshow. We don't know what to do with this. It's icky. We don't know what victory looks like, and we want some battleships, right? So the Admiralty is like, no, we just want battleships. But this is a time of great change in, in uh, naval architecture, right? So if you think about it, there's a shift towards artisanal production, rather, or away from artisanal production. Shipyards, you basically just throw a lot of money at a shipyard and you get a ship out, right? That was what was happening really until about 1850. You see the rise of engineering, right? Engineers actually get a lot wrong early. So the idea that engineering clearly replaces artisanal manufacturing is a little bit silly. If you look at, if you look at aeronautical engineering today, you know, Bert Rutan, who built Spaceship One and all the Virgin Galactic stuff, he's essentially artisanal, right? He doesn't really do these large production runs, right? So the idea that industrial production beats artisanal production is actually not really all the way true. Industrial production is predictable, and so it's easy to budget it, but it's not necessarily better. The, the British are having a huge argument about this in 1840, where there's essentially three different tribes. You have the Royal Navy captains who want to drive requirements, you have the engineers who want to drive requirements, and you have the old shipyard owners, all, all of which want to drive requirements, right? Nothing at all to do with the Africa squadron, but the way they decide to work this out is that they make this thing called an experimental squadron that is basically just races small, fast ships against each other to adjudicate this. And really, it turns out that they don't really know who wins, right? It's all politics and who's the captain. And, you know, really, they, they're, engineering is so primordial that a lot of the reasons why they think things work aren't actually why things work. Um, for instance, copper coating on a hole, the idea was that it reduces surface drag. What it really does is reduces barnacles because they don't grow on, on copper, although surface drag kind of sounds like it should make sense. So, I mean, really, there's a lot of flailing around and guesswork. But what happens is the experimental squadron has this bevy of really fast ships. So the Africa squadron reaches into the experimental squadron and takes a lot of their most successful interdictors out of the experimental squadron. So both of them are actually contracting out for fast ships, strangely enough. Um, and so that's one of the fascinating parts of the technical competition, is their ability to search the British Empire for resources that were not necessarily purpose-built for them and apply those resources. Um, Steamers actually change things a little bit. So when, when, we, when the British go to steam, steam is relying on coal depots and slavers can't really do that by the end. And so um, one of the other interesting things that comes out of this is the willingness to adopt new technologies. 
the Admiralty is against Steam at the outset. They're like, we're the best fleet of sail, why do we want to go to Steam? Steam's a bad idea. Steam was initially slower, it was clunkier, you know, there was no desire to do it, but it works really well in the doldrums because, you know, you don't need wind. And so if we think about going back to the special operations analogy, right, there is a willingness to try new technologies, you know, especially technologies that are challenging to current power structures. And so you actually see a lot of the early use of steam is with the Africa squadron because of the doldrums problem, and then with that, steam, steam takes off. So it actually serves as an incubator for some other sort of major technologies. Um, so going to that boarding treaty, right? So the British, suffice it to say, they, they, they spend about 30 years, a lot of war debt, building a comprehensive treaty that looks basically like this. And I won't go through all of this, but the thing to realize is they're renegotiating treaties whenever, the, whenever they pass a treaty, the slavers will adjust their business model, go through a loophole, the British will reboot their treaty network to solve, to solve those loopholes. The, most, the key one that we talked about earlier is the equipment clause. The equipment clause says that if you are, if it, you know, if it smells like a slaver and it walks like a slaver, it's a slaver, regardless of who's on board. The, they, they do this after the slavers learn that the British are gonna look for anybody on board, and so they essentially put everybody on shore in these things called barracoons, which are um, slaving fortresses, right? What happens before this is that the slaver can go up and down the coast and basically negotiate bargains, right? When they do the barracoons, they actually have to turn into syndicates, right? Because they have to pre-organize the trip. They have to basically make one stop and then try to take the middle passage out. And so we'll see, um, actually, I, I think I did that slide, but they don't change the middle passage time, but the slaver voyages actually go down in length by about half, right? Half to one third, because they're no longer shopping. That's inducing some costs, right? So every time that they, they take a countermeasure, those countermeasures are always costly. So now they have to basically set up these barracoons along the coast, which the piece at the end of Amistad, what it's actually talking about is the first attack on a barracoon, which going back to the idea of, um, of sovereignty, right? They actually did that through part of a treaty network with African kings. Um, that equipment clause allows them to attack, uh, attack slavers prior to their arrival at barracoons. And that's why they're getting two out of three captures around the equipment clause. Once they get that, they reboot the whole network. The British um, diplomatic enterprise gets exceedingly quick at identifying new slaver tactics and then re redoing their negotiations globally. So they start immunizing essentially the entire network. Because every time we see an up upgrade in slaver tactics, they will go to every ship, that, everyone who has a viable uh, flag and will reboot those treaties. So that gets really, really interesting. Um, the British will also, and we'll talk about sort of the direct interventions in the 1850s, uh, but, but these, are, uh, these are core proceedings, and you see most of these are done through that treaty network. Second phase, closing the trap, they've already be built this network, now they're gonna contest them at sea because there's nowhere for the slavers to go. It's gonna then be primarily ship on ship. So big changes here, they have that treaty network, it's a mature campaign, and they start thinking about what to do ashore. They get away from magical thinking, and they're like, we gotta back palm oil, we gotta back development, we gotta do something in West Africa to fundamentally alter the ecology. We can't just kill the slave trade and expect magically that, you know, that a good economy is gonna grow. Um, this starts pulling them into some really interesting uh, uh, interactions with uh, tribal leaders, and actually starts setting some of the seeds for, for imperialism. Right, it's, it's becomes very difficult for them to manage the complexity of that, that entanglement. Um, so capture risk by error, we were talking a little bit earlier on how actually for, for illegally running slavers, your risk is actually around 50%, depending on where you're at. 
that's pretty significant. That's very different than a 5% capture rate. Mm -hmm. <clears throat> and if you look at, um, I mean, really whole, whole regions have been locked out by that. So the British, we talked about a network to defeat a network. They build a huge transatlantic network of depots. Everywhere the, the slave trade goes, they start going, they start rebooting their bases. Slave trade goes down the coast, they go down the coast with bases also. They change where they're um, going. So once again, a very dynamic campaign. And we talked about that analogy of building, building a, a dam. If you look at the 1800s, it's really all along the coast in Africa and all along the coast in the Americas. 1820, you start, see, um, you start seeing it uh, channelized. Um, and then by 1840, it's really only going to a couple specific points. We talked about the last couple of rocks, all the water's still moving. So if you go by volume of captives, 1840 looks as bad as 1800 did, right? But if you look at it closer, right, there is a couple key points where you can finally bring force to bear. It can't move anymore, it's backed into a corner. Right, it's exercising its last good options, which is Rio Harbor, Havana Harbor, and uh, Dahomey, and about three other major kingdoms. The British can now bring their, the full force of their navy to bear on those last five places because they just soaked up every other option, right? Which is, <clears throat> but they're almost about to pull the plug. Also, there's there's a there's a number of um, free traders under HUD who basically take a essentially a very strong libertarian tactic that says you'll never kill a market, we should just legalize, essentially do a soft re-legalization and regulate it, it'd be better for everybody if we did that, right? Think about how crazy that is, right? How different history goes if in 1849 the British pulled a plug. And it was within about 30 votes that they did. Um, it was pretty close. Uh, in fact, their government, um, Palmerston and his government bet the continuation of their government on the continuation of suppression policy. And so that's a decisive vote in Parliament. And, and part of this goes back all the way to Wilberforce is that he hands it to Clarkson. Um, a plug for Clarkson, the movie Amazing Grace gets him wrong. Like he actually is probably more significant than Wilberforce in many ways. He's not this foil to Wilberforce. He's probably, and, and part of that is, you know, amazing, you know, amazing book that he comes from. But that book goes off the biography of Wilberforce's children and they basically wrote Clarkson out of the whole thing. Mm -hmm. Wilberforce's children then apologized to Clarkson for that, but they never rewrote the book. <laughs> so unfortunately, all sources that derive from that without knowing that piece tend to paint Clarkson in this sort of like sideshow light. He's probably, he's actually the guy who carries it through the 1840s. Mm -hmm. okay. um, so Clarkson and the Anti-Slavery International is really keeping this coalition going. He starts colonization efforts into West Africa. The idea is by taking sort of economic growth in the gospel um, and then, then essentially that starts radically altering the West African ecology. The interesting thing is that one of the people who's driving that is Crowther, who basically his <coughs> argument is, I grew up in a synthesis of, of Anglicanism and, and West Africanism, and I want to go back to where I'm from and bring that synthesis back home. In a really striking uh, part of this, he actually meets his mother, and this becomes a key sort of uh, part of the narrative of, of the sort of reconciliation, he's like, actually, where I came from became my new authentic identity. So when he goes back with that synthesis, he actually proposes a new authentic identity for where he's from, which is uh, pretty fascinating. But anyways, within, uh, within 30 votes, um, and they sustain it. Meanwhile, Deadman, so the, that last scene in Amistad, where it's got Captain Fitzgerald, that part's actually not Fitzgerald, this guy called uh, Denman, who has the distinct advantage of having a father who's a Lord Chief Justice, right? What's great about that is that he feeds information to his father, and his father gives him top cover with the Admiralty, because he likes taking risk. 
right? Deadman is, is one of these three tour guides, right? He starts actually with a affiliated ship to the, with the Black Joke, right? He's part of that early sort of, hey, let's get in the fight, let's learn how to do it. Comes back with the experimental squadron ships, and he's like, hey, we're actually doing this professionally. And then the third tier, he's like, we got to go ashore. He identifies these barracoons as, as key, key nodes in this network. But he can't do anything about it because the foreign office is saying, don't bring us ashore, don't go ashore. You're not allowed to engage these. These are on other people's territory. We don't want a treaty network, right? We don't really want to engage with African kings. It's just going to be a lot of entanglement, which ends up becoming that actually is true. But the, cap the royal navy captains are basically like, we need to kill the slave trade. The only way to kill the slave trade is to go ashore, right? So the foreign office and the royal navy captains kind of have different time horizons, and that changes kind of how they approach diplomacy. So Denman, in 1843, it gets this tasking to uh, to essentially, there's a Sierra Leone uh, British subject who took out a debt to, uh, to the local king. The local king took him hostage. Denman's supposed to sort all this out, right? It's sort of just normal kind of imperial bookkeeping, right? Well, that king happens to be the one that has the barracoon that he wants to go after in Sierra Leone. So Denman's like, well, since we're here anyways, you know, how much do I need to pay you to give me the right to go after that fortress, right? The king's like, hey, how about this one? She's like, that sounds great. How about we take it with Marines? And after that, you take all the trade goods in it. And the king's like, that sounds awesome. So Denman, um, Denman clears out this barracoon, um, levels it with Congreve rockets, right? I mean, kind of Michael Bay style, like really sort of just toast this thing, right? And then afterwards, the uh, the 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 Spanish owners of it beg him to take take him back with them to London, right? Which they do. Um, then they proceed to sue him and say, "Oh, look, you took our stuff." Goes to court for five years, right? Which is actually one of the best things that happens in the suppression campaign because it puts Denman in London, advocating for it, but also building a tactics manual. Denman builds this sort of universal tactics manual that. Um, four years later, when a court upholds his attack on this and says, "Yeah, you got a treaty. It's fine." He makes essentially a Mad Libs for treaties. It's part of his tactics manual. I state your name, allow the British to do X, Y, Z for state your, you know, sub signed here, right? <clears throat> the captains then take this up and down the coast of Africa, making their own treaty network, which is one of the things that channelizes it to a couple sole, sole, sole holdouts. It's also one of the things that brings the British in because they start in incurring imperial obligations with this, right? That, that essentially is what happens at the end of Amistad. Um, Denman probably also loses his shot at being an admiral for that, um, or at least commanding the Africa Squadron. I take that back. He becomes an admiral, but he never commands the Africa Squadron. Part of this in 1850 is one of the people that sides with the Free Traders is the, is the admiral in charge of the Africa Squadron. His three key captains call him out on the floor of Parliament and say it's just because you're bad at sailing, and so that obviously does not turn out perfectly for their careers. But Parliament actually sides with those captains. Um, so we talked about this piece. This is another, this is a huge key. So Palmerston is a huge part of this. Palmerston and the sort of swagger and all of its complexities of British imperialism, when the Portuguese want to withdraw from the treaty they signed, Palmerston basically, once again taking a little bit of license, he's, the, the Brazilians are, or the Portuguese are like, hey, we're getting out of the treaty. Palmerston's like, oh, it's okay, I renewed it myself. And basically threatens unilateral uh, enforcement, which the Portuguese decide they don't want to they don't want to really go that route, so so obviously they don't want to enable war with Palmerston, and so they get out of it. The Brazilians hold on a little while longer. <clears throat> so the Brazilians are basically trying to get out of their treaty obligations, but really just running this whole thing illegally. Everyone knows they're doing it. 
So what Palmerston does, remember that it's essentially localized to Havana Harbor and Rio Harbor. He brings a British battle fleet into Rio Harbor. He says, since you're having such a hard time enforcing your laws, let me help you with this. And goes to a slaver that's moored right outside their parliament building, boards the slaver at its moorings, lets everybody off, and burns it to the waterline in front of their parliament. He's like, oh, I found one. <laughs> so, so the Portuguese or the Brazilian government is livid, but it actually causes the abolitionists um, to be able to blame the slaveholders for it, who then take over the government and say, look, you brought in the British. They don't really love the British intervention either, but they're like, look, we're done. And so that's how Rio, Rio goes out of it, leaving only Cuba. Um, so, and West Africa, right? There's a lot of economic changes that are happening there. A lot of cost imposition, right? This is a monthly wages compared to general shipping industry for slavers. They're getting paid a lot more, okay? Um, we'll blaze through some of this. We talked about the African Treaty Network. But this is, this is Crowther's piece, right? So remember Bishop Crowther goes back, using his status as a bishop of the Anglican Church, gets a, a expedition to go back, um, back to where he's from, right? He actually starts this, this uh, essentially colonization effort, um, and he brings three ships with him. And so what's really fascinating is you see the Sierra Leone Creoles using their status as British subjects to be able to leverage British resources to go back to where they're from. It's a very different flavor on that colonial encounter. Hmm. Um, in many cases, I, he basically says there's a fundamental flaw where I'm from, that fundamental flaw is slavery, and the British, you know, as a British citizen, I'm going back to repair that flaw. That's very challenging to the way we normally see that. Um, but very complex effects too, right? I mean, I don't want to paint this in, I don't want to paint this in sort of a rosy picture, right? A lot of people are suffering for this. There's a lot of mistakes that are made. Um, <clears throat> there's a lot of, there is a misunderstanding of multiple sides. And so there is actually a lot of suffering being handed off to, to the captives. Obviously the slavers are gonna put them in a lot of risk and they're gonna treat them as more disposable. So they are absorbing a lot of the risk. This is, this is part of the costs where there is sort of moral challenge and who is who's signing people off for those costs, right? Flashback real quick, 1816, one of the people who, who got missed during uh, sort of Wilberson, Wilberforce and, uh, and Clarkson's efforts uh, during there was the Royal Navy captain who was very enterprising. He started this campaign against, quote, the white slave trade, unquote, which is essentially piracy out of Algiers. Mm. And he used anti-slave trade uh, rhetoric, I think accurately, to go after the day of Algiers, showed up with an enormous battle fleet, basically blew up the fortress of Algiers, made him sign a treaty that said he wasn't going to, to kidnap people off their ships anymore. Um, probably that was not the wisest thing that could have been that could have happened. It was a whole lot of moral panic, a whole lot of kind of, you know, it was very significant to the 2,000 people that were rescued, but basically he took all of Europe to war with the day of Algiers over this. Um, so a lot of this was really well intention, but also not necessarily the most sober approach. There's probably a better way to do that than blowing up Algiers. Um, bombardment of Lagos is actually part of this complexity too, as we talked about once they go inland, they get involved in power struggles. And so there's two kings of Lagos, and one of them is supporting slave trade and one of them is not. The British get pulled into this, and they start having to actually get involved in these wars. Um, interestingly, a lot of African tribes actually bid by way of their missionaries to the British for Marines, saying they're the abolitionist power, right? Which is funny because the Foreign Office is like, hey, I don't want, I don't want any part of this. <laughs> by being, being able to play the anti-slave trade card, it actually energizes the evangelical networks to do military interventions. So that's complex. Um, 
And then we talked about um, some unwilling costs. There's also a darkness to this. So part of this is, think about what 50 years watching this does to somebody, right? From the outset, the British are pretty, the British captains are pretty clear that they have no love for slavers. Um, the idea that there was a special status exerted or, or reserved for Europeans on Europeans, African tribes are saying that wasn't true. Basically, they're like, the, the British are brutal to any slave traders they find. And essentially think, once again, I love the show The Wire, right? I mean, think about the British, if you oppose a boarding, they will use it as an, uh, that's an unfair thing to say about everybody, but there's definitely a lot of people who, who don't mind an opposed boarding. Um, so if you give them an excuse to have an opposed boarding, and if you think about it, right, every time they see a slaver, those slavers go right back into circulation. They're seeing the same, in many cases, they're seeing, seeing the same slaver five or six times. Every voyage they get on, about 40 people die. There's a certain logic to say, hey, clearing the deck isn't a horrible idea. Once again, I, you know, it's hard to judge that, and it's hard to judge what 40 years of watching that does to somebody, mm -hmm. especially because you know the slavers will throw people overboard and make you have to chase them, right? Mm -hmm. That probably hardens somebody. There is a decisive moment in this where the British actually board a slaver, put a, sli a prize crew on board. Slavers take it back and kill the British prize crew. British find this vessel, find their dead prize crew, they take it to a court. The court finds the British have no, no jurisdiction, and the Royal Navy just loses their minds. And there is a, from that point on, the Royal Navy interprets a lot of, or several crews at least, interpret their instructions very literally. It says, let the slavers off, it doesn't say where. So they start marooning them um, very intentionally. I'm basically saying this is, these are the terms of this engagement now. Um, so it gets really bloody, it gets really complex. Um, there's this, there's definitely a dark side to that. So the idea that these are sort of knights in shining armor, that just isn't the way these wars go. Um, and you can see that you have a lot of British captains who are seeing it that way. Um, I will, I'll skip this one, but there's a short version on this, is that there is a sort of a swashbuckling story in this. The British are waiting outside of Havana. They know that they know that the um, the the uh, director general uh, or the captain general rather of Havana is supporting the slavery in this case. That goes back and forth. There's actually some that are that legitimately try to suppress it. In this case, the captain general is supporting this. There is two ships that that are made for speed. The British are waiting uh, in a dock for them to go. The British actually chase down one of these ships. Um, the other ship assumes it's going to get away. Um, so the British the British. Uh, captain puts his lieutenant on board his ship, chases the second ship. I'm sorry, there were three ships. Boards one of them, um, goes to the captain and puts a pistol against his head and basically says, sail for your sister ship. So he ends up using a captured ship to take all four ships. When he, on his way back, he sails right by the governor's mansion to basically say, to, to basically rub it in. So there's a weird, interesting sort of Nelsonian, mm -hmm. you know, master and commander piece of all this. And then, um, I will skip part of this, but that's uh, Nathaniel Gordon, who is a slaver that is hung by Lincoln, that starts, that starts scaring all the rest of anybody who's involved on the U.S. side with, um, with um, slave trading, and that starts drying up all the capital for it. And by this point, it's really, the, the Cuban uh, captain generals will alternate in, in their support or opposition to it. Their support for slave trading is all just corruption, they're making money off of it. Um, but the, there are some people that are actually uh, anti anti the trade. In their case, really, the British only need one or two of them because the trade's on its last legs. By then, he um, they they get that guy in 1866 or 1864, I believe. Um, and then by 1867, the trade dries up. He starts actually doing domestic enforcement, and that is uh, the end of the trade. 
Uh, this is what we talked about earlier, the coolie trade. This is where it starts transitioning to fraud. To the British's credit, they actually identify the coolie trade as, as basically a handmaid into the slave trade. It did, did take efforts in the 1840s and 50s to try, try to differentiate it and, and regulate it so that, so that they were limiting the amount of fraud. So the abolitionist, um, the abolitionist movement did actually identify the coolie trade the way that we would identify it now as human trafficking. Um, but, and that forced it down to a certain level where basically it was fraudulent, but the amount of fraud was, um, I wouldn't say managed, but not what the historical slavery was. <clears throat> and then uh, simplicity and complexity all throughout this case study. That's Deadman's quote in 1850. It did just die on its own. Like, I really believe the British killed it. And Palmerston, in all of his complexity, that's fascinating, on his deathbed. That's what, that's what Palmerston says. The one thing that he's most proud of is maybe, as problematic as that statement is, right? right. I mean, and all of that stuff, that's pretty fascinating. That's, that's